scripture reading is pulled from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 through chapter 5 or chapter 3 verse 5 excuse me but we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ so then brothers stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, uh, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us so that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you to Faye. We're beginning to spread out, as you can see, our scripture reading team, and uh, you'll also be hearing from other voices reading scripture in the service, so thanks for reading that. We're, as she mentioned, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's printed there for you in the bulletin and has been read for us already. I want to talk to you today about having confidence as a Christian I think as Christians, we have a confidence problem, and I think it's pervasive in all different aspects of our spiritual walk that we have a really hard time feeling accepted, uh, feeling loved by God, feeling like we're actually pleasing God with our actions, with our hearts. It's just not something that we normally ascribe to ourselves that I am confident in God's presence. I'm confident that He loves me. Even when we're doing well, I find that when someone is, is doing well, maybe you have a more intentional prayer life, or maybe you're in the Scriptures more often than you normally are, what we're often doing to ourselves is saying something like, well, things are going well, but I just wish it would be better. And, and we have we just don't have that sense of hitting our stride and walking with the Lord and feeling confidence, even though the Scriptures talk about a boldness of coming into God's presence, even though it talks about us having confidence. What is confidence? What is the type of confidence that we're talking about today? The way I would describe it, looking at this passage that we have just had read to us and summarizing it, is it's a kind of comfortable strength. That's really what confidence is. It's a comfortable strength. Sometimes we talk about uh, the virtue of courage, which we could say would be strength when we're uncomfortable. So when there's an uncomfortable situation, maybe it's hard to do something and you're called on to have strength, you then have courage. You act out of that. But when we talk about confidence, we're talking about the times when we actually are hitting our stride, when we feel well-loved and well-known and we're at ease and to have a strength with our comfort. You see these two things uh, juxtaposed in verse 
16 and 17 of chapter 2, he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us an eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Comfort your hearts and establish them. The word there is just to strengthen or to make resilient. It's speaking about a strength, a calm strength is what he prays for. I think these are phrases that are often just kind of read when we read our Bible. Oh yeah, comfort, strength, uh, establishment. Do we slow down and, and realize that what Paul is praying for is an actual thing that we can have? It's something that he prays that God would grow in us, that we would have this comfort and this strength at the same time, this confidence. I want to talk about that today and ask this question, how do we grow in spiritual confidence? How do we become confident Christians, the way that the scriptures describe it? And I'll answer in the negative first and saying why, how we don't become confident. It isn't from pumping ourselves up and making ourselves full on our own actions or abilities, our own contributions to God. That, in fact, is a way that we lose confidence. I've told this story before, but uh, it's Family Sunday, so any kids in the room, do you guys have bikes? I know my sons have bikes. In the back, you guys have bikes that you ride? Have you ever gotten a flat tire? Okay, that happens. We get flat tires uh, on our bike. Actually, the tire itself is not flat. If you know something about how bikes work, it's the tube on the inside. The tire is the outside part, but there is a rubber tube on the inside that holds the air, and that's what you actually pump up. A few years ago, I got one of my sons uh, a bike, and he rode it for many months, and uh, no issues whatsoever, and then all of a sudden, we got a flat tire. Now, I grew up riding bikes all the time, changing my own bike tires, so I knew how to change a tire on a bike, and so I did. I changed this tire for my son, and he rode it for a day, and the next day, it was flat again. So I thought, well, that's the strangest thing. Maybe it was just a bad tube uh, that, that we bought. So I went back to Walmart and bought another tube, and I put, pumped that tube up, and I put that tube on the bike, and the very next day, it was flat again. Now, this is the strangest thing. Like, I know how to do this. I'm not messing this up. Um, I know how to pump up a bike tire, and I know how to fit a new tube on the bike. It can't be me, uh, and it must be the tube. And so I went back again and again. The fourth time that this uh, tube would get flat, I thought, I have to take a closer look at this. And so I began to examine the tire, the outside part, and I finally found this, this tiniest, tiniest little nail stuck in the tire. Stuck in that outside part. It was so small that you couldn't hold it and hammer it in. It was just this tiny little nail. It's stuck in there. And so what would happen is when I would put on a new tube, pump it up, then put it around this, this uh, frame and put the tire on top of it, that whenever pressure was put on, that tiny little nail would puncture the tube and would happen over and over again. So I had to remove the nail I want you to picture that as our confidence before God, that we get pumped up with, and feel like we're, we're doing things for Him, we're excited for Him. Sometimes, though, we feel extremely flat. 
We feel like all the air has gone out. And I want to tell you that the reason why we often feel that way, most often, has to do with a nail that's stuck in the tire. And that nail is our own human effort, our own ability to make ourselves worthy before God. When we try to to make ourselves worthy before God, it actually leads to us feeling flat because we realize how much we fall short of that. If we base our confidence on how good we are feeling or how obedient we've been or how pure our thoughts are, we lose confidence. We don't gain it. So we can't just keep pumping ourselves up and then keep flattening ourselves out. I want to talk about an alternative today. What is the alternative for having confidence in God? It's, by, it's this in summary. By focusing on God's objective ministry to us, the things that He has done, His character, His salvation, His blessings, His promise, His Son, His endurance, His love for us, rather than focusing on our obedience, our contribution, our whatever you want to put in the gap there, that, that will lead to us puncturing the 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 tire every time. But when we focus on what God has done, we actually switch our focus completely and we see what, that He actually gives us reason for confidence. Paul says here in chapter 3, verse 4, that he has confidence in the Thessalonians. Look at verse 4. And we have confidence. Well, he says, I have confidence about you, but what's before that? In the Lord. We have confidence in the Lord about you. His confidence is not in their performance. It's in God's ministry to them. It's in the Lord that he is confident. This morning, I want us to look at three pathways to return back to a proper confidence in the Lord. Three pathways back. How do we get that confidence? It's not in our own pumping ourselves up. It's actually found in the Lord. All of these have to do with God, not with our performance. And therefore, they are all ways that we can truly pump ourselves up. We can have confidence before Him. And the first one is this, rehearse God's salvation. Rehearse God's salvation. This is what Paul often does in his letters and what he does here very beautifully. Look at verse 13 as he describes what God has done. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There in two verses, Paul lays out the summary of salvation. And he says, you ought always to give thanks. You ought always to be thinking about this, to be talking about it. You ought to be rehearsing this story. He intends for us to repeat it. What he does here, it's very jam-packed is he introduces a lot of theological terms and, and movements that God has done. In a summary way, he tells us the order of salvation, what God has done in real time to save his people. 
What is this order of salvation? Well, the way that Paul lays it out here is it begins with love. That's the first movement. Brothers beloved by the Lord. This is the previous relationship. This is the nature of our relationship with God that he has set his love on us. This is where scripture begins. This is where the story of salvation begins. It is the first action from all eternity that God in himself who loved himself, Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity as an overflow of that love created the world and made us his beloved. That's where it begins. Then the second movement is out of that love, God elects his people. God chooses them. Look at verse 13, second part. Beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits, or in some translations or some manuscripts say, from the beginning, He chose you from the beginning to be saved. The word there is that He took some, or He even preferred some people. He showed favor. He picked you. This is what the Scripture often talks about. God's electing will. He loves us, and he set, in setting his love, he favors some. Now, why does God favor those whom he loves? It's a mystery hidden in the beautiful heart of God. It's not something we can straightforwardly answer. But we can know a few things about it. We can know for sure that it has nothing to do with our performance it's not as though we're in the middle of some cosmic kickball game where people are choosing people to be on their team and God says, I'll take the strongest, I'll take the bravest, I'll take the ones who can do the most. That's what we might think would be behind God's favoring us or electing us, but that's not what is behind it. We know that because the Scripture tells us. This idea of election is not a new word for Paul. He's bringing it in from the Old Covenant. The elect were God's chosen people, the ones that he favored above the other nations. That's Israel. Why did he call Israel? Well, we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and, and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It wasn't because you were mighty, Israel, he says, that, that God chose you. You were the fewest people. You were in slavery. You, you weren't contributing anything. You were, you were slaves but because God had made a promise and he set his love, and here's where we run up against the mystery of God's will. He set his love on this people. He made promises to them, and then he brought them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That was salvation pictured for us. He chose a people and then gave them salvation. This is what Paul is drawing on when he says, God chose you from the beginning to be saved. After election, we move further into divine mystery when he tells us how he did this. He gives us two instruments. Number one, divine sanctification. Number two, human faith. 
He says, through, so you are to be saved through or by sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. This is God's work of salvation through the Spirit, divine sanctification. That word sanctification just means holiness. He gave you holiness through His Spirit. This is what's referred to as, it's a big word, regeneration. What God does in us is He makes us alive to Him. He wakes us up by His Spirit. He makes us holy and desirous of Him, and then He gives us faith through also belief in the truth. The word belief there is just the word for faith. Faith is the mechanism that God uses to unite us to Him. And by the way, that faith is also a gift from Him. Ephesians 2 says that we have faith because it is a gift from God so that no one can boast. But the faith that He gives is nonetheless our faith But notice that the faith has to be rooted in something. And belief or faith in the truth. See, we live in a day when what's highlighted is the sincerity or the amount of faith. Everyone is supposed to have faith. Not just people in the church. Everyone is told that we need to have faith. Believe in something. Believe in yourself. Believe in the the human heart, the, the human spirit. Believe in something. Believe in the future. Believe in the person that you love. But what's often emphasized is it's not what you believe in, it's how much you believe. That you need to believe, you need to have a sincerity of faith. So it doesn't matter which power you put that faith into as long as you do so sincerely. This is easily seen to be a complete sham, though. Imagine you're listening to some late-night religious channel on the TV, and a person on the screen tells you that if you just send in $500 to this ministry, you will unlock guaranteed monetary blessing. You will have some kind of blessing. Now, if you send in that $500 and it actually goes to a scam, it goes to someone who is a fraud, it wouldn't matter how much you believed in that $500 or that person on the screen. It wouldn't matter If you believed in the process, what would matter is the fact that they were a fraud, they were scamming you, that they were not trustworthy. So of course, it matters what the object of faith is, not just the sincerity of faith. The sincerity of faith is useless without a good object to put it towards. And he says here, belief in the truth, this is faith in the truth as presented by Paul here has believed in Jesus Christ. Moving on to God's calling. After that, verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we call effectual calling. God calls all those who are his, not with a voice audibly most often, but God draws in those who are his. He could be drawing you now. This is what He does in real time when the gospel is preached. Then the Holy Spirit draws people to Himself, those whom God has loved and set His his chosen. And what happens is they hear the gospel. That's what He says, through our gospel. What happens when the gospel is preached? Conversion. We are given repentance and faith. 
We repent of our sins. We trust in Christ. We're baptized into the body. And all of that leads to the glory of Jesus Christ so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we call glorification. That is the end of all human endeavor. The end of all the world is the glory of Christ. This is the story of salvation. Paul does this in almost every single one of his letters. He gives us some kind of look, some kind of glimpse into the story of salvation for us to rehearse that that it began with God's love, that He favored us with grace, that He gives us the Holy Spirit and faith, that there's a call from God that's experienced as the proclamation of the gospel. There's repentance and faith and a life lived to the glory of God. This is our salvation. And it's building on that that he then says you should have confidence in verse 15. So then, brothers, as a result of this, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. See, our our eyes often go to that command first without seeing how Paul has situated it. Stand firm, everyone. But stand firm in what? In what God has already done. And hold on, he says. Hold on. Grip. Grab onto what? The traditions that were taught to you. Often in Paul's writing, he uses that word to grip or to grab onto, and he talks about Christ himself. Here he says, hold on to the traditions. Hold on to what we taught you, both in word and by our letter. To you, our letters. Now, we don't have the words that Paul said. Sadly, we don't know what he told them in person. He was an apostle. Whatever he said to them in person, he says, is also trustworthy. We don't have that. We do have the letters, though. We have the letters that we hold on to these letters. All these letters tell us the same thing. This is salvation. This is how God has done it in real time. He has redeemed us. So, Stand firm. Have confidence. Rehearse the story. How does this help us build confidence? If salvation is up to you or based on your effort, what right do you have to any confidence? But if salvation is up to God, what right do you have to challenge it? Let me say that again. If salvation is up to you, what right do you have for any confidence? Your right to have a flat tire. Your right to to keep feeling the pinch of, of losing confidence in your own abilities. But if, as Paul presents it here, God is the author of salvation, He is the one who has accomplished this, He is the one who has drawn you to Himself, presented the gospel to you, then what right do we have to challenge it? Do we think that we know ourselves better than God? Do we think that we understand our sin better than Him? Do we think that our sin outmatches His grace? He knows us, and He still loves us and has still drawn us to Himself. If you have felt that pull of God towards Himself, You're not trusting in your ability to even know that. You're trusting in his ability to do what he's already said he's going to do and has done. So rehearse the story. When you're 
feeling flat. Tell yourself what God has done, not what you are contributing. That will lead to a flat tire every time. But if you go back to things that are beyond your life and beyond even your scope of understanding, that's what you're trusting in. Second pathway to receive confidence is to receive God's help. Rehearse God's story now, or his salvation, and receive God's help. See, this is not just something that God has accomplished in the past. This is something that he actively invites us to walk with him in. He wants to help us in two specific ways this passage talks about. First, he wants to give us comfort. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2 with me. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Paul's logic here is this, as he begins to pray for the Thessalonians. Again, Paul moves you know, seamlessly between talking about the glorification of Christ and theology to a prayer. And what he prays for is that the one who has already secured eternal hope and comfort would comfort you in real time. You can receive the comfort and strength of God. If God cared for us so much eternally, in other words, why would he not care about your experience of him right now? He's here to help you. And so what Paul prays for here is not that we would live in a state of terror or discouragement, but that we would find a real comfort in God. Knowing that God wants my comfort helps me have confidence in Him. He desires to lead me there, in other words. He is pleased when the tire is full. He is pleased when I'm confident in His presence. He gives me comfort but he also gives a second thing, protection. This is another prayer that Paul has at the start of chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you, there's the word again, he will strengthen you and guard you against the evil one. Paul prays for himself. Pray that I'm protected. Not everybody has faith. It's just an obvious statement that he makes there. Not everyone has faith. Not everyone's pleased that the gospel of God is going out. So pray for me so that what happened among you, Thessalonians, remember he went for three weeks. They all had faith. They now have become a model for all the other churches. I want that to happen again. Pray that I would be protected from these enemies. And then he prays for them that they will be established and strengthened against the enemy, the evil one. So he's talking about here, really, if you look at the whole passage, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the enemies that are out there, the enemies within the flesh, the enemies of evil and uh, wicked men who stand in front of the gospel, try to, and then the evil one himself. And he prays against that for God's protection, which means that the evil one must want us without strength. I mean, think about that for a moment. 
Why would he pray against this if the enemy didn't often do this? He wants us flat. He wants us navel-gazing. He wants us thinking about God as the great curmudgeon in the sky. He wants us assuming that God is disappointed with us, wished we were a little better. But he says God can protect you from that. See, receive God's gifts now. It's what Paul prays for. Comfort and protection for the people of God. They've already received salvation, but in real time, he wants them to feel that they are comforted and protected. How many of us, when we're feeling spiritually flat, are not leaning on the good gifts that God gives? Not believing that he wants us to be comforted, that he wants us to be protected. Rather, we're assuming that he wants more from us and that we would perform better. But in fact, he's the one who's saying all along, I, I desire your comfort and protection. How many of us who have children or perhaps have worked with children have discovered that our children have been thinking or wrestling with or being burdened by something that was really not true, not a reality. Maybe they were worried about something that they didn't need to be worried about. And they tell you, you know, this is why I'm sad. And you just have this reaction where you think, why didn't you tell me that you were thinking that? I could have helped you. You didn't need to worry about that. That's not going to happen for a long time. That, that's already over, whatever it might be. Because in that moment, what we want to do is protect and comfort the child. Are we better parents than God? He wants our comfort and protection. He offers it to us that we can receive and he does know. He's not like us parents who don't always know what's going on. He knows what's in our hearts, but he still desires for us to come to him and, and pray like Paul prays here that the God of comfort, that's his character, would comfort us and that this God who can protect and can defeat the enemy will defeat him in these instances. We can grow in our confidence knowing that God is ready, not just with what he has done in the past, but he's ready to give us good gifts now for our confidence in his presence. The third pathway towards increasing our confidence is to rest in God's character. I love the final prayer that Paul prays for the Thessalonians in verse 4 of chapter 3. He says, And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? May God direct your heart towards his, his love of you. Direct you towards the steadfastness of Christ. It's the character of God, specifically the love of the Father and the steadfastness or the perseverance of the Son. The idea of directing there, it means to, to weave around obstacles. So you see what he's praying? 
I don't want things to get in the way of you understanding the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Knowing someone loves you and is for you is how you build confidence. If you sense or believe that someone loves you, it gives you air, doesn't it? Doesn't it pump you up to know that you're loved, that you're accepted? My mom um, is called by her grandsons, four of whom are here today, and others, D. That's her, her grandma name. So her name is Debbie. And so they all call her D. And ever since they were little, she's just done this with every single one of my kids. She will hold them if they're little or grab their hand if they're walking around and say, look at me. D loves, and she draws it out. It's a southern lady. Big draw. D loves, and then says their name. D loves Cademan. He loves Rhodes. She loves Rhodes. She loves Leland. She loves Townsend. And she'll do this over and over and over again, (laughs) 10 times at once. And what she's doing is she's building confidence in them. They're loved. The human soul wants so badly to hear that, to know that. And you can see it in them and you see it in me even as I'm watching them. Confidence growing. I'm loved. My mom is very loving. She is not more loving than God. It's where she learned to be loving. And God is directing us towards his love through Paul's words. That's what he prays. Direct your hearts to the love of God. Look, look at me. I love you. God loves you. That's what he's saying. I want you to have that experience of your heart going around those obstacles that are popping up that are saying, yeah, you're not worthy. Yeah, you're not acceptable. This is, this is, uh, this is too, you're asking too much. I want you to be able to move around those so that you can get to the heart of God. That he loves you. And that Christ is steadfast. The idea there is of patient, waiting, endurance, the steadfastness of Christ, the one who waited in hope for the story of redemption to take place for his part, the one who endured the pains of the cross, the one who waits for the redemption of all things. He can persevere through whatever you're going through. He is steadfast. You don't need to look to your own steadfastness. You need the steadfastness of Christ. And He is able to take your sin and your apathy, any rebellion you may have. These are the stakes that I want us to put in the ground. We grow in spiritual confidence when we see how God saved us, how He helps us right now, and how much He loves us, His character. If we lack spiritual confidence this morning, we need to hear these words. Are you able to say with confidence, I'm right with God. I love God. God loves me. God is pleased with me. God delights in me. God sings over me. Zephaniah 3, 
17. Are you able to say those with any amount of confidence? If not, let me ask you this closing question. You can ask yourself this. Does my lack of confidence have anything to do with me? My sin, my apathy, my worthiness, my past. If you're beginning the sentence like this, I don't feel like I can be confident or I'm worthy because I, then just stop right there. That's the nail in the tire. It will let you out every time because you aren't worthy. You aren't engaged enough. You aren't pure. This is not what our hope is. Our hope is found in taking the focus off of ourselves. You didn't come here today to hear about yourself. There is no hope there. There is no life there. There is no confidence there. You came to hear about God. And that's what Paul says throughout this passage. This is what he has done. This is what he continues to do. And this is how he feels about you. He has saved you. Rehearse that story to yourself if you're feeling a lack of confidence. He will help you if you're lacking comfort or feeling attacked. This is what he desires to do. And he does love you. And he wants you to experience his love. And he wants you to think about Christ and his steadfastness rather than your own perseverance as the key to your confidence. And when you return to him over and over again, you find the confidence is not in yourself at all. Every time you go there, you'll go flat. So don't go there. Put your trust rather in him and what he has done. Let's pray.